Fabulous Vibro. Fabulous what? Fabulous Vibro. What? Fabulous Vibro. Fab for free for all. Three cool guys. Three talking cool about the cats. Beatles. <laughs> and they talk geeks. about the Beatles. No, we're not geeks. One eight hundred for help. We're knowledgeable scholars and fans and geeks. Geeks. And Come back to geeks and freaks, man. What the hell? Are you ready? That's going to be the opening. That's isn't the it? opening. Yeah. <laughs> we're knowledgeable geeks. All right. You ready? And welcome to another edition of the fun, interesting, exciting, and new, maybe not so new, but the Fab Four Free For All, where we, us, three of us, talk about nothing but the Beatles. That's right, nothing but the Beatles, people. We got everything you want to know about the Beatles and related, you know, so and we're not related, but I am Mitch Axelrod, your moderator for today, and joining me, as always, are the other goons, Rob Leonard. Tony Trigordo. Today, we are going to talk about a book that has recently come out called Abbey Road to Ziggy Stardust, and it's by Ken Scott and Bobby Ausinski. Ausinski, sorry. It is on Alfred Music Publishing, and... And I love the subtitle, actually, which is kind of cool because off the record, so often, right. yeah, off, off the, record. the record with the Beatles, yeah. Bowie, Elton, and so much more. I like the double entendre there. Yes, but... Off the record. And, and funny enough, uh, when we did a review or talking about a book by Chris O'Dell, her book, the title went on for longer than the book. But we love the book. True. And it yeah. just seems that this one, thank goodness, there's so much to read and I'm I'm really happy and I'm excited to say that today we um have on the phone with us the author of this book, Mr. Ken Scott. Ken, welcome to Fab Four Free For All. Well, thank you. I'm really excited to be with you today. Oh, he's excited also. He's just yeah. playing on the fact that we have an exciting show. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Stop. Let me tell you who Ken Scott is. For those of you who don't know, you should, because Ken Scott is very important in, forget about just being part of the Beatles history. Ken Scott is very influential in jazz. I mean, let's go through some of the people he's worked with. He worked with the Beatles, one of the five main engineers. We know that. He's worked with Elton John, Pink Floyd, Procol Harum, Duran Duran, for those of you who want to say reflex, flex, flex. Uh, I just love doing that. Jeff Beck, or the Jeff Beck Group. I mean, Super Tramp. Mahavishnu Orchestra. Yes, and that's the jazz part of it, too. Yeah. Jazz rock. There's so many others. Stanley Clark, who I love. Billy Cobham, one of my favorite drummers in the world. Super Tramp. Super Tramp America. Missing yeah. Persons. Missing persons. I mean, I, you know, I, I hope we're not embarrassing you. Well, that's you our hour. Time. Thank you very much. Good night. <laughs> yeah, Devo. An hour to go through your credits, Ken. Yeah, Devo, Kansas, yeah. the tubes. She's a beauty. Oh, please. I know. But <laughs> I, okay, sorry. Uh, but that was their commercial. That, you know, they had to have a commercial hit. But yeah. I will tell you, Ken Scott has been, to quote <laughs> Paul McCartney, here, there, and everywhere in terms of music. Yes. And it's true. So we are very proud and honored to have you on the show. I will say that Read your book, could not put it down. Uh, right. it, it was one of those books where I just had my highlighter and the yellow highlighter, and now the whole book is yellow. <laughs> uh, because I just felt that the whole book is so important. And it's not a boring book. For those of you who are really going to sit there and think, well, I don't really care how he mic'd up this. There, there's, a little, there's a lot of technical stuff in the book. But the nice thing is that, Ken, I, I appreciate the fact that you've taken a lot of the technical things and you have those series of the gray... Um, right, you know, right. Gray bars, and there are little segments in the book where, after sections, 
Ken, where you talk about what has transpired in the studios, where you, you just fill the folks who do want the tech stuff. And right. we know with Beatle people, there are a lot of Beatle people who, and people who are into David Bowie and whatnot, who want to know tech and gear. Sure. So, well, look, I, I'm not a techie by any stroke of the imagination. So I, I basically wanted the book for the fans. Now, knowing that there are a lot of techies out there, the, the publishers put me together with Bobby Ozinski, <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, who, who has written like 14 tech books. Oh, okay. And I, I have to admit, when we were first put together, I was a little worried because where we were coming from was so so different. But uh, it worked out amazingly. We sort of spoke about it and decided to, to split it up so that the fans can easily skip the tech parts. The techies can easily go straight to those parts, the parts they're interested in, and avoid the stories if they don't want them. And uh, we both got our points of view in there, which was great. So I'm really happy with the way it turned out. I, I have a question for you. And... It's more of, I'm not going to get into each personality yet, because you do mention them in the book, but yeah. you're talking about the White Album. And I want to get into the whole back in the USSR, because I think that might have also played into the uh, leading to all the fallacies, you know, later on in life. Of course. But in general, like, you know, you're talking about John coming in with Julia, very introspective songs. These kids were 28 years old, 26 years old, 25 years old. Did you feel they were... If, even at that time, well above the others who were recording at that time in terms of profoundness, did you feel a sense of that even then? They were the biggest band in the world, of course. <laughs> it was, yeah. they, they obviously had something that others didn't. It, and sometimes the sessions could be exceedingly boring. And the thing that always got me through those boring times, apart from going upstairs and looking out the window at naked girls, uh, <laughs> it, it was... The other thing that got me through was the knowledge of how great it would be in the end. Wow. Right. Let's go back to back in the USSR, and then I want to get to your other point, because you talked about some of them could be boring, and I think we have to talk about not guilty. But um, <laughs> back in the USSR, Ringo quit, so it seems that it's more than just, you know, an occasional temper going over. But that, I think that's, the, that's one of the misconceptions. It was Ringo quit, not out of malice, it was, he felt unloved. He was taken for granted. He was one of the best rock and roll drummers in the world. And it, it, he wasn't told it. Right. And I, he right. needed that. Yeah. And, and, and that's what it was. He just felt unloved. Why am I here? I'm not needed. Mm. And so he just didn't turn up. But, but you did record without him. And yes. I think a lot of people knew that Paul played the drum track, but... Not a lot of people knew that there's, or know, until they read this book, there and I'm going to give it away. Hands, yeah. There are other hands on those sticks for a second yeah. drum track. Yeah, well, there, yes, there are six sets of hands <laughs> playing drums on uh, back in USSR. There, initially, I think, if I remember correctly, we laid down Paul. It wasn't quite there, so then John and George overdubbed as well, and we mixed it all together to make it sound like one kit. So, the, so all three are actually on that track? Yes. Wow, that's a, I, most people just assume it was Paul. Yeah, of course. Yeah. I always yeah, thought it was Paul. Paul. Yeah. I think I think Paul always thought it was Paul. <laughs> <laughs> Paul always thinks it's Paul. <laughs> Our guest today on the Fab Four Free For All is Robert Rodriguez. Uh, he is the author of a new book called Revolver, How the Beatles Reimagined Rock and Roll. I've got to say to everyone listening, and we'll, we'll reinforce this later, you should all go out and buy the book. 
But if anything, I've got to tell you, Robert, And Your Bird Can Sing has always been one of my favorite Beatles songs. And I had never heard the story that you talk about in here and give that song a possible meaning that in all my years as a fan did not know was a possibility. And I think you hit it on the head. (laughs) I've got to say, after reading that, I'm like, this has to be right. This just makes sense. Well, now you got to tell about it, Robert. Yeah, yeah, there has been talk through the years, you know, people trying to figure out what the song means and your bird can sing. You know, an obvious literal meaning to extrapolate from that is, oh, they're singing about the Rolling Stones because Mick Jagger's bird, Marianne Faithful, she sang. She had a musical her. And, you know, begs the question, well, why would they write a song that has nothing to do with the Stones? I mean, if you look at the lyrics, it really doesn't mean anything in any connection to the Stones at all. And why would they put down somebody in their own social circle? It, it right. doesn't make any sense. Right. And the other thing about the song is, you know, whenever Lennon was asked about it, and this is such a powerful, great guitar-driven song. It's so beautifully put together. I mean, everything about it is just perfection. Mm-hmm. He was so dismissive of it. You know, another piece of garbage, another piece of crap. You know, he never got into it in any great length talking about what inspired him, you know, as he would with other songs that clearly meant something to him. So... Using that, there was a speculation in a book by Jonathan Gould who pointed out that there was a piece by Gay Talese written on Frank Sinatra back around the time they would have been writing songs for Revolver, you know, like uh, March of 66, and talks about how you know, he's following Sinatra around as he's getting ready to do this Man and His Music TV special in late 65, and capturing the way he, his speech pattern, and he uses the word bird a lot. He's constantly tossing it around as a synonym for Little Frank. And it's just part of his conversation, his persona. It's like a verbal tick. And We're not talking about Frank Sinatra Jr. <laughs> no, not that one. <laughs> okay. We're not talking about Frank Sinatra Jr. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Go ahead, yeah. I say Little Frank, not necessarily literally. <laughs> gotcha. comments or anything to go by. We got it. Like Little Elvis, right? <laughs> <laughs> that was exactly. Little Elvis from what I hear. Go ahead. Yeah. And there was this certain animosity between them at the time, Lennon in particular, you know, that if you look at the timing of things that I guess there was two years in a row that Sinatra beat out the Beatles in the same categories they were nominated in for uh, Song of the Year and things like that. And, you know, Lennon was particularly sensitive to other people out there that were, in his eyes, too dismissive of rock generally and the Beatles specifically. And Sinatra was definitely one that was constantly saying, I mean, basically that idea that, you know, I don't get these Beatles. I don't get it. I don't get the attraction. I don't get it. So, but anyway. They have an interesting relationship because, you know, there's the whole story of this song. And then two years later, his soon-to-be ex-wife runs off with the Beatles to Rishikesh. That's right. And you have to wonder how that sat with them. And that same year, he cuts that birthday tribute for Maureen Starkey. That's right. The lady is a champ. Wow. And, and three of the four Beatles would later in their solo careers write songs that they very much wanted Frank to record. You know, mm. Suicide and Far East Man and Nobody Loves You When You're Down and Out. So I think they had some kind of weird ambivalence toward him. How funny. Not yeah. to mention something Jack. So. Yeah, the greatest Lennon McCartney song ever. <laughs> Good old friend. And of course, Jim Birkenstadt is the author of The Beatle Who Vanished which is uh, published by Rock and Roll Detective, LLC. And it's the story of Jimmy Nickel, who, of course, was the Beatles drummer for 
about two weeks when Ringo had his uh, tonsils taken out. And the fun thing is, too, that Jim also has uh, quite a bit of history with the Beatle organization. Which we'll get to also. So we'll touch that also. So, Jim, let's start off. How and why did you write a book about Jimmy Nickel? That's a good question. Well, I always wondered, you know, what, what do we know about this guy that only got one sentence in Beatle books taking over for Ringo in June of 64? And I always wanted to know, well, where did this guy come from? How was he picked? Was he the first guy picked or the 12th guy picked? You know, and why was it so important to replace Ringo? Why couldn't they just postpone the tour? And then once they selected Jimmy Nickel, I always had wondered, what was it like right in the middle of that amazing first world tour, Beatlemania, people going wild wherever you go, people screaming outside your hotel room until you can't sleep at night. And I just thought, what was that like for an everyman, you know, like any of us who's just an everyday person, and they're suddenly within less than 24 hours thrust into that type of situation. And then finally, I always wondered, what did this guy do with his 15 minutes of fame? And, and some of the people I talked to who knew him before the Beatles said, we don't know, he just seemed to disappear. He kept vanishing. We never saw him again shortly after the Beatle tour. So I found from six years of research that he would vanish whenever he wanted to start over in life and reinvent himself. So the whole concept of this guy fascinated me, and so I just thought, well, maybe there's a book there, maybe not. And I wasn't going to publish the book until I felt that I had the whole story. Jim, it, it sounds like Jimmy might have been a, someone working for the CIA when he goes to <laughs> you know, different countries. His undercover yeah. thing would be being a drummer or something. Well, that's what <laughs> if you wanted to fictionalize, you could make him a, a CIA agent. Right, right. Well, you know, it's funny how they say sometimes that the truth is stranger than fiction because once he, those 13 days of, of headlines and fame were over, that's when the real mystery of this guy begins. You know, he walks out on his family a year after he's with the Beatles. He's gone bankrupt. He's become divorced. Wow. Uh, he's lost all work. Although Paul McCartney secretly got him a little work with Peter and Gordon on a short tour, uh, just as kind of a gesture, nice gesture, something that Jimmy never knew. He then blames Brian Epstein. He thinks there's some, you know, blacklisting involved, and and then he feels like these bands that didn't make it betrayed him, and and then he walks out the door around the fall of '65 and doesn't tell a single person, no one in his family, none of his musician friends, nobody knows where he went. So that's what kind of kept me going researching. I then found that his M.O., which is like CIA guy, would be, I'm going to start my life over now, I'm going to walk out the door and end up in another country. And he would wow. do that for a while, get bored, or something would happen, and he would disappear. And I asked the Spotniks, after two years of touring, I thought, well, where'd this guy go? None of them knew where he went. One said, well, I think he went to uh, Brazil because he liked bossa nova music and beautiful women. <laughs> <laughs> so it's, yes. uh, it's an interesting story to follow because each time he would disappear and not tell loved ones or friends and he'd end up in another country. He also would lay false 
rumors down. Like he told Billboard magazine when he was in Mexico that he was moving to Sydney. And so some of the British friends of his that I interviewed said, yeah, I think he went to Sydney. But that turned out to be a smokescreen. Yikes. As a research, what a unique, what a strange cat. I mean, it's, it's the kind of thing where you have to wonder, with all due respect to him and his family and it, but, you know, was there some kind of sort of innate personality disorder? And with that in mind, you know, in a way, was, was the Beatles experience one of the worst things that could have happened to this guy? Yeah, well, I think it was, that's a great question, you know. Sometimes I think, well, maybe it was the worst thing. Other times I think it was the best thing. I think it's one of those, the answers is, is both. It was the best thing because it did lead him to more work. And work, even when things went bad, something good would suddenly fall into his lap. And I'd go, I can't believe this guy, how lucky. He, he, he had a... He had like a cat with nine lives sometimes. It was yeah. just amazing to me when he'd reach a bottom point where he'd reinvent himself and suddenly great things would happen again. He'd start making money. And some of those times he would use the Beatles' connection to help him. And other times he would be bitter and blame the Beatles. And not really the Beatles so much as Epstein. He came to really feel that Epstein had blacklisted him. And, you know, I asked Tony Barrow about that. But Tony said, you know, that's so ridiculous. He said, first of all, having worked side by side with Epstein, he said, that's not the type of guy he was. He wasn't a vindictive no. person. And he said, I never saw Epstein blacklist anybody, and he had the power. And secondly, he said, we all appreciated in our organization that Nickel was able to come along and do such a great job. He bonded with the Beatles, became friendly with them, and he knew all of Ringo's parts already. He had learned them in the studio because he had done a cover album of Beatles oh, songs by coincidence, you know, before this, this thing ever happened, this tour ever happened. So they actually appreciated him and said, you know, we, we thought he was great for helping us out. He pulled us out of a big disaster. Sure. Tonight's a really exciting night for me, and not because my wife and I are going out, but um, we, we <laughs> have a romantic. Other, I am a romantic, you know, but, but <laughs> let that be the case of some other time. Tonight's exciting for us um, because Tony? Yes. Rob? Yes, Mitchell. You guys always join me every week, right? Yes, we do. But we have a guest on the phone who never joins me, and I'm very upset that she doesn't join, join me every, every week. week. Yes, because she should. Yes. Uh, and she could, and we'd probably have a lot of fun on this show, but... We are very, very excited this week. Well, wait, do we want to bring bring her in by doing a very lame imitation of, no. of the... Okay. No, we don't. Because I wanted to do it. No, we're lame enough. <laughs> we, we really don't need to do that again because she's probably heard it a million no, times. of course she has. But, uh, but seriously, folks, you're, you're going to enjoy this too because uh, as most of you know, this past week or so, a new documentary has come out which has been... Uh, couple of years in the making, actually, I'm sorry, 50 years in the making, but uh, a couple of years actually physically in the making. Uh, the documentary is called Good Old Frida, and it is the story of the very private person who was the secretary of the Beatles fan club and had a lot of interaction with the group, their families, and all of the inside people uh, in the Beatles camp. Frida Kelly, and we are very, very excited to be welcoming Frida to the show. So, uh, Frida, thank you for joining us, and welcome to Fab Four Free for All. 
Thank you very much, Rob, Mitch and Tony. The thing that struck me about the documentary, Frida, and even you know the way you're speaking about it now, is that there is such a homespun quality. There is such a... Um, Quaint. A quaintness to how it all started. I mean, a very organic way, too. It all seemed to come about very naturally. And did it all feel sort of like a logical progression for you to kind of, you know... Yeah, things just happened. I mean, I didn't know the parents until I went to work for Brian Epstein. Oh, okay. Um, okay. I knew the four lads, you know, and then I got the job because I knew them. Right, um, right. Brian Epstein saw me with them all the time. And then he came up to me, as it says in the film, you know, I, after a certain place they were playing. And then he told me that he was going to sign other groups. And one of them was Jerry and the Pacemakers. So mm. he was going to start his own firm because... He worked for his father, and right. the firm was called then NEMS Limited. And then he started a firm called NEMS Enterprises. So that's when he started the firm, and he needed a secretary. So uh, he offered me the job, <laughs> lucky enough. Um, but, I did, you know, when he said, you know, are you interested, I'd say that was the Saturday night or something. So I went to see him on the Monday and decided, yeah, I'd like to do this. But I didn't tell home, as you know, in the film, because... Yep. My father didn't approve of the Beatles. Right, yeah, right. <laughs> uh, I'm sure other fathers were similar. It wasn't just my dad. No, I'm sure it wasn't just your dad. But now, Frida, this isn't. It's not mentioned in the film, but it's true. I mean, you were working as a secretary with Brian, but you also had fairly regular contact with all of the other bands that Brian worked with as well. So you were working with. They were in the office all the time as well. I mean, it was there was the Beatles, and then it was Jerry and the Pacemakers. Then it was... Um, Billy J, of course. Billy J. Kramer with the Dakotas. Right, right, right. The Dakotas were a Manchester group. But they played at the Cavern before Billy. You know, they used to sing with a guy called Pete McLean and the Dakotas. Hmm. And then uh, Epi liked the Dakotas and decided to ask them would they back Billy. Then we had the Foremost. Right. Um, hmm. We had a, a girl singer called Silla Black. Yeah. Sure. And then we had Tommy Quickly. Wow. I don't know if you heard of him. Yeah. Or yes, yeah, yes, of course. Yeah. And of course, all our road managers, they were all Liverpoolians as well. What year did you officially become the secretary? 1962. Okay. Now, Ringo joined in August of 62. Yeah. But in the film, you do talk about each Beatle, and you do talk about Pete Best. And yeah, because I, I, um, I was going round or knocking around with the Beatles before Richie joined them. Right. He was with a group called Rory Storm and the Hurricanes. And I used to go and see them as well, because Rory was really a good entertainer. Um, and then we won't go into... No, no, we won't. Yeah, but Pete left and then Richie joined. No. And I think it was about two weeks into him joining. No. <laughs> in, in the film it says, you know, he walked in and asked me to do his mail. And you said no. <laughs> well, because, hello, you know, I'm, I'm doing Epi's work in the day and I'm doing fan club work overnight. So I didn't have time to do their own stuff that went to their homes. So when he said, you know, can you can you do my stuff? I went, no, I can't. <laughs> and I was serious. I said, like, get your mother to do it. <laughs> I don't know what to do, you know, and I just know what. But what what cracked it for me was, you know, he kept going on and on, and you know, put the sad eyes on, you know, and I went, oh, go on then. And it, when he brought, you would have had to see it. He brought, you know, about nine letters in a bag and. <laughs> You know, the other guys were getting, you know, about 200 letters to the home, and I just couldn't believe he only got nine. So, of course, my 
heart melted as well. Oh. And I went, you only get nine letters. I thought, oh, God love him, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I said, oh, go on then, I'll, I'll show you mum what to do. And uh, so I went that night with, you know, my little bag with compliment slips and uh, handout photographs and other things and um, went into else and gave me the egg and chips and that was it. I went every weekend for years. It's a beautiful scene in the film, actually. Yeah, and uh, the same with Mimi, because Mimi lived on her own and uh, I used to go to Mimi once a month. used to go on a Tuesday to Mimi's. And in, in the film, you know, Mr. and Mrs. Harrison, I didn't help them with the mail because they were absolutely brilliant with it. <laughs> right, But right. They, I would go, naturally, to their house, you know, because I went out socially with them. Um, but they were always in the office. Well, everybody connected to people, <laughs> to the Beatles were in the office because they always wanted what I called handout photographs. Yeah. And I had, like, <laughs> thousands of them. We used to order about, you know, 10,000 at a go. Wow. So if the parents were around town... Or I was going to them. I always had, you know, a stack of these handout photographs because people asked them, oh, have you got a photograph of George? Or have you got a photograph of John? <laughs> so, uh, you know, the lads didn't give them photographs, but I did. Hello, this is Kevin Howlett, author of The Beatles, the BBC Archives, 1962 to 1970, and also executive producer of On Air, live at the BBC, Volume 2. You know, the, uh, you talked about the audition report and um, the funny, the application, and you have a copy of it in the archive file that you spoke about, and it's very interesting to see because, you know, you have, first of all, it was Pete Best, and then you have Brian filling in, you know, all of the stuff. He talks about they, they played with Tony Sheridan. They did The Saints with My Bonnie. And, and on the back, the notes. Can you talk about the notes that were made by uh, the BBC staff? Yeah, it's fantastic. Um, Peter Pilbeam was the producer who auditioned them. And it was for a program produced in the north. So they went to Manchester, quite a short journey from Liverpool. And Peter Pilbeam, his handwritten notes are on, on the fourth sheet of this application for an audition. And so they get the audition, he's got the form, and he writes on the, on the notes, and you can, you can see this. In his handwriting, Paul McCartney, and then there's a dash, and then it says in capital letters, no. <laughs> Meaning, uh, you know, I don't think he's good enough to sing on a broadcast. And underneath Paul's name are two song titles, Dreamers, Till There Was You meeting like dreamers do and then john lennon dash yes and uh, underneath john's uh, name is memphis tennessee and hello little girl so uh, then the, the really great comment I, I i just love this it's one of the wonderful it's one of the greatest understatements of all time he says an unusual group not as rocky as most more c and w meaning country and western with a tendency to play music. <laughs> yeah. How true. You know, you yeah. think about it. Wouldn't that have been funny if it said As Pete Best? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Pinwheel twist. We're down with that. Pinwheel twist. Sorry. <laughs> anyway. So it is, it's funny you mentioned that, that they paid attention to the Beatles, you know, three months before the contract with EMI and seven months before Love Me Do. So there was really no... Uh, really, I mean, uh, the only backlog the Beatles had was was their stage p- performances. Yeah, yeah, and um, it's interesting. I, I also discovered when uh, writing the book that um, Peter Pilbeam had turned down Jerry and the Pacemakers and the Big Three and Billy J. Kramer. They were all auditioned for this show. It was called, and here's a great title from that era, 
teenager's turn. Here we go. <laughs> yeah. Because on the radio at that time, uh, you know, the allocated slot for teenagers Monday to Friday was at five o'clock in the afternoon, half an hour, and uh, it was called Teenager's Turn. This is this is the show for teenagers. Mm. Um, but you know, those other you know Liverpool artists had been turned down by Peter Pilbeam, so there was something about the Beatles that caught his ear, and uh, he gave them that break, and uh, you know. Well done to him. That that was great. So, you know, the thing about the BBC is that you had some people in the BBC who understood this new music and were trying to get it on the air, the kind of maverick producers and and the sound balancers. But then you had the managerial staff who were a little older and really didn't understand what it was all about. And, And one of the things you can see in the book is this kind of lofty attitude that the uh, older BBC management has, even when the Beatles are conquering the world, they don't really understand the value. Sure. Um, which leads us also to the fact that uh, not one master tape of their Beatles radio performances was kept by the BBC. It was not preserved. We had to Amazing. get what a shame. material from other sources. Right. Amazing. Well, no one knew, again, right. uh, especially... And it wasn't just the Beatles, too. It was all the, those bands at the time, right? That's right, yeah. And the, the Beatles did more sessions than anybody in such a short time. Hi, this is Mark Lewison, and you're listening to Fab Four Free For All. We haven't talked about Pete Best yet. I swear, he's uh, just about to go there. Um, you, you said that the, the quote I'm going to take from the book is that John, Paul, and George had a disconnected existence from Pete. Yes. That's... He was there for two years. Yeah. But he doesn't seem to be a friend, according to what I read in the book. Um, he, he, he and John had a friendship of, of a kind, um, but, but not enough for John to in, ever want to keep him in the group. Right. The only reason he was there two years, it's quite clear, is that they were too cowardly to do anything about it. Uh, again, I think that's John's own words, until they eventually had someone to sack him for them, which was Brian who they made, they made Brian do the dirty work that they've been reluctant to do themselves. Had and there been any earlier moments where they could have gotten rid of him and they chose not to? I n- mean, not that I know of. Uh, they could have got rid of him at any time. And that's, in a way, a point in itself. The fact that, that they could get rid of him, it just shows that that was his position in the group was expendable. But he was booking, though, too long. They were, the bests became indispensable to the running of the, of the group. Right. From the moment they get back from Hamburg the first time, it's Pete and his mother who are kind of organising the bookings, and it's their friends, including Neil, who are driving the Beatles around. And suddenly, if they get rid of Pete, they've got to do all this stuff themselves, yeah. and it's just kind of easier to just let things go. But he's never going to be there forever. He's he don't, he may or may not have known it, but he was always on borrowed time. You have to wonder whether or not there was some kind of underlying psychology from Mona to the more they made themselves indispensable. Yeah. Maybe she was even aware that Pete had some limitations as a musician. But well, I doubt it. Enough. I doubt it. I, I mean, she just uh, she called the Beatles my son's group, which I think probably didn't go down very well with yeah. the other three guys. <laughs> well, uh, she particularly John. She, her devotion to her son was really quite extraordinary, and his to her, similarly. Well, yeah. she had a problem, or George had a problem, and Paul had a problem with Norman, didn't they? Not that I... I mean, they, they all fell out with her when they stopped playing the Casbah the first time. Right. Uh, and they wouldn't have forgotten that any more than she would have forgotten it. I don't really know too much about what they thought of her or she thought of them. Um, and we'll probably never know that stuff. But also, their, their house was way on the other side of town. 
Yeah. And it's a, be- it's a beautiful house. I was, and I'm like, yeah. wow, this is a huge house. The piece of land is huge, too. And the yeah. other three Beatles didn't have that. No, that size of a house. No, no, it was um, it was definitely an experience for them to go over there. But they they all lived in the south end of Liverpool, and, and he lived in the north end. And these guys only ever really got around by bus, right? In those days, or a series of buses. It's hard to believe. You know, they're, they're carrying their guitars or their amps and yeah. going on buses. Well, Ringo yeah. running four hundred feet at a time <laughs> to go <laughs> grab yeah. the, one drum with one drum because he can carry the whole set. Unbelievable. Now the yeah. other thing with Pete is that you know I didn't realize that contractually. Brian was told you may have to actually break up the Beatles and yes. reform them. Well, there's another breakup story that happens in 62. Yeah. yeah. When it came to dismissing Pete, when John, Paul and George told Brian you've got to do it. And by the way, Brian Epstein, I say this in the book, Brian Epstein's business cards, uh, he described himself, uh, he said the Beatles, Brian Epstein, sole direction, yeah. um, <laughs> which was a phrase he had picked up from somewhere. Um but he never had sole direction over the Beatles. No one could have sole direction over these no. guys. Anyone who thinks that Brian could have just dictated to the Beatles like that doesn't understand the, the mechanics of the way this, this band so worked. So the Decca audition, the Beatles picked those songs, basically. Well, it wasn't Brian Epstein. It was interesting for me on this project to actually look at how some of these myths took place, because the myth about that one is that Brian made them do this repertoire, and it was probably that repertoire that failed them, the, the audition, and he had meddled in their music, and he should have left alone, and it was their business, not his, and all that. And actually, all that is completely untrue, and it comes from the Hunter Davis book, and he didn't really say it either, right. <laughs> but, but there's been that, it's been an interpretation of what he wrote in that book that's become popular myth. The only influence Brian had on their set list that day, so far as I can see, is to, is to suggest that they did three of their own songs because they were not doing their own songs on stage until they met Brian. They, they always avoided it. They were embarrassed by them. They didn't think their audience would want them. Mm-hmm. So they seem to have begun playing their own songs on stage the, the same week that he became their manager. I can't say that he made them or suggested it, but it's more than likely because it's a good, it's a, quite a strong coincidence. And it, it ended up actually being very beneficial yeah, to them that they had done because of the publishing and situation was, that it, comes up later. It was the, through doing those three songs at Decca that they actually got the contract to right. EMI through the right. publishing situation, as you say. So yeah. if anything, yeah. Brian Epstein's meddling, so-called, in their Decca set list actually got them the Parlophone contract. And let's face it, they were much better off with George Martin than they would have been at Decca. Definitely. Oh, yeah. It, it was, it was yeah. so... We, we should be really grateful they failed that yeah. test. Yeah. And really grateful. Changed the course of history. Yeah. And incidentally, when I talked to the engineer on that session, uh, a guy called Mike Savage, who, again, since has died... Um, oh, no. Mike, yep, sorry. <laughs> Mike told me... Sorry. Yeah. Mike told me that had we signed... Had Decca signed the Beatles, they weren't going to use Pete Best. Wow. So... Bert Camfort had two sessions with the Beatles. He he barely allowed Pete to drum on. They certainly didn't let him use his bass drum or his toms uh, on the My Bonnie sessions. The Decca guy said we wouldn't have used Pete, and George Martin said we wouldn't have used Pete. So That's he four sessions in a row where the drummer has not impressed the technical people. They would have brought in Bernard Purdy. I think, <laughs> that's what was. He was waiting I'm outside sorry. the door, just <laughs> but you know bursting to come but in. That's a myth, also, because Pete always. <laughs> is puzzled at why he was fired. And you, 
I thought I missed something in the book because you always said he knows exactly why. And you read and you read and you read. I'm thinking, wow. He I'm called gonna... me. Mitch called me and said, did I miss something? Did I miss something right. in the yeah. book? Yeah. I mean, said the defi- what's going on? And it, no, he just wasn't good enough. Right. And it's right. there. And even the Beatles, when they knew they wanted him sacked, they stopped going to the Casbah. Yeah. Uh, a good what two or three months yeah, prior a couple to, of months, a couple well, of months the, prior. the club closed anyway right but, um, well did it close because they stopped or I think it closed because because um, Mona was heavily pregnant at that point uh, right? eight yes. months yeah. pregnant yeah. and that's also well, another myth of, of why Pete was sacked maybe because of the situation with Neil and Mona you mm. know and, and it's just all it's but nonsense it's just there's a lot of myths good. it comes yeah. down to him them them feeling again it's let's not say he wasn't good enough let's say they didn't find him good enough right because okay. that is more to Better the point it's, it's not what we think it's really what they thought they knew he wasn't good enough for right. what they wanted and they also knew that they didn't gel as a band now, if you've played in a band, yeah, you, will, you will know when the chemistry is right and when it isn't right. And every, with him, it was never quite right. And whenever they played with Ringo, it worked. Yeah. So yeah, you, even have mo- you even have a moment where Neil, who was his best mate, even that, that comments. Was, that was the, the thing. When yeah. Neil, to cl- I closed one of the chapters with Neil saying, before Ringo, it was always John, Paul, George, and a drummer. This is Alan Cozen, the author of Got That Something, How the Beatles' I Want to Hold Your Hand Changed Everything. You have to go buy the book Got That Something. If you want to know the subtitle of the book, you have to go buy it. <laughs> That's good. Wow, there's a... That was good. Thank you very much. Wow. How the Beatles' That's I Want to like Hold a Your Hand Changed Everything. Hey, you're giving it away. <laughs> oh, duh. Oh, my goodness. That just cost you a couple of sales. Exactly. Red sales in the sunset. Red, very nice. Thank you. So we were talking before the break about the sexuality of I Want to Hold Your Hand. And, you know, there's so many rumors about the Beatles and sexuality in their lyrics. Uh, please please me, you know, mm-hmm. you know, if you take it with a, a comma or two, then, you know, it means something else. Mm-hmm. Um, so let's get back to that whole, you know, I Want to Hold Your Hand it's, and, and other misinterpretations of the lyrics, as we alluded to in, before the break. Right. Well... You know, I mean, first of all, the Beatles were not 12 years old. Um, but and their fans were. Their fans were. Well, some of their fans were. and uh, Some of them the, had already the, held the Beatles' hands uh, in yes, Germany. Yes, that's right. <laughs> um, yeah, they were singing to uh, young girls, and they wanted to overtly have it seem innocent. And, uh, you Titillation, know, they, as it were. Mm. Titillation, yeah, as something it were. like that, yeah. And uh, you know, music has a long history of um, subterfuge of of that kind. I mean, <laughs> most um, definitely. <laughs> and if you look at, I want to hold your hand. I mean, look at the way every verse ends. You know, I tell you something. I think you'll understand. You know, I want to hold your hand, and that that I want to hold your hand when they finally get to that thing that they want to tell you, and it turns out to be something so innocuous. Look at what's going on in the music. They leap up an octave. Now, when a song leaps an octave, <laughs> something sorry. is going on. And I know leaping. when I leap up an octave, something's definitely <laughs> well, going not on. Not only are they Someone's holding your crotch, octave, <laughs> but they're leaping to you know a falsetto. Right. Now, from their point of view, this had a lot of uses. I mean, they were using that falsetto, uh, you know, high note thing um, a lot, and they had kind of lifted it in a way from the Isley Brothers, not sure. to mention. Little Richard, well, sure, yeah, and they had found that when they would sing, you know, a, ooh, 
Some sort of vocal ejaculation. Yes. <laughs> and you know they would they would Sorry. go up to the mics and they'd sing ooh and they would shake their heads and the audience would go even crazier. I mean, after a while, you couldn't tell one crazy from another because well, it was just total screaming. Because we all are. That's true. But right. but at the, at the time, you know, early on when they they found that when they did that move, it would be an audience. Yeah, they knew know, what they were doing. Yeah. Oh yeah. Um, and so it's in there partly for that reason. And I want to hold your hand. I believe, but also, I mean, just just in terms of the storytelling, when they're saying "I want to hold your hand" and they leap up an octave to a falsetto, you know, clearly they're talking about some sort of excitement that holding your hand is not going to give you. you know? <laughs> or maybe at that age, maybe it did. <laughs> well, depends on where you were holding your hand. <laughs> <laughs> But, but I want to hold your hand to see there was the rest of the line that was missing. Right. I want to well, hold your hand uh, right about here. I'm sure that you I, I'm sure that you've just seen the manuscript the copies fit, of, right? uh, of this song. There are there are a couple of manuscript copies and and one of them, um, which I, I believe Paul wrote after the fact to give yeah. to someone, the verse ends with I want to hold your thing. Yeah. <laughs> But that copy, isn't that in the British Museum? Uh, I believe it is, yeah. yeah. Uh, it was uh, the one that Hunter Davies owned. Right, and, and there's another one, though, you mentioned. You mentioned where it is in the book, uh, uh, the first copy. I don't know who actually has that copy, but it's included in the anthology uh, right. book. Right, yeah. right, yeah. And that might have been the copy that they would have used, you know, on the music stand in front sure. of them while doing the while vocals. Recording. Right. You know, because there were some things crossed out. But the other one seems to be a later copy, and it may have been written to give to Hunter Davies, you know, at, at that time. Um, the bridge as well, that business of the of the 11 bars and uh, I can't hide, I can't hide, I can't hide. I mean, there's Again, a certain... Again, an arpeggio of up. Yeah. I mean, just, yeah. hey, how it's you just doing? the build. Yeah, the, the harmonies keep the going up with each repetition yeah. and, uh, you know, you so... You just ruined every Bee Gees song for me now. <laughs> uh, well. You should be dancing. Yeah! Oh my God! I guess they don't want to dance. <laughs> you know, in that falsetto, I mean, we're, I know we're, we'll undoubtedly get to the, the four-track aspect we started a little before, yeah. But, you know, they they reinforce that falsetto. You know, on the overdub track, it's one of the things that's on there is just the falsetto on hand. The rest of the verse, they didn't bother doubling. But when it gets to, I want to hold your hand, you you hear on the fourth track, hand, just like that, all by itself. And then, you know, you go back to the vocal track where where the vocals are totally on their own and you listen to it and it's not like it's weak or anything. It's not like it needed reinforcement, but it clearly was important to them to get that falsetto really kind of ringing. Now, do you think that was just an excitement? Now, I'm all kidding aside. Do you think that was just the excitement of being in the studio and building a song that way in the fact that they could because they had a little more power in the studio or was was it a happy accident i mean i know you're saying it's probably not a happy accident because that the fourth track actually had it but i mean was it such a conscious effort do you think to do that to um, make it the the excitement build up and i mean not for sexuality reasons but just in in general for song structure and song excitement reason yeah i mean well when you have a situation where you've got a spare track that's being used for overdubs and embellishments and you have only that one note and you have it every single time it comes around in the song, yeah. Yeah. It, there's no way of seeing it, I think, other than yeah, as a deliberate Yeah, because could have been so much else, really, yeah. that they could have done. Yeah. But if you and think so about much other reinforcement or, or added levels, really, 
that just to have hit that pinpointed that one moment as the point. But if you think about the middle part of that song, it's almost, I don't want to say a different song, but it's a different sounding song. There's you mean a, the middle eleven. Yeah, the middle eleven. <laughs> there's there's a there's an openness in that part, and yeah. and, and, a, and a slight quietness, like they drop their they do. vocal. Well, the rhythm just a section bit. has they also yeah. fallen yeah. back John a little stops, bit too. John stops playing, and George switches to arpeggios. Um, so yeah, the backing of of that section of the song is completely different. John yeah. drops out. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, I mean, it, the thing about listening to it in the sort of isolated four-track, uh, you know, where you can hear that falsetto and everything going on, is it really gives you an appreciation of the craft involved here. Oh, God, yeah. Now, yeah. You, you got to listen to the four-track, the actual four-track? Um, not the actual four-track, but you and anyone at home could actually reconstruct the four-track. How is this, Alan? Ways. How has this happened? Well... Okay, here's what we now have as raw materials. There are three stereo mixes of that song. Two of them have very similar instrumental placements. Uh, One of them has a completely different placement. It has the vocals all on one side and the instruments on the other. Is that the Australian mix? The Australian one. And And you do tell about every mix in in this book. So you, you can... You know, if you miss it here, go you, when you get the book, it's there. Right. Now, we also have, of course, the the Mog files from the... Rock band. The, Rock uh, band game. Yeah, the game is the toy, as I call it. Yeah. Uh, uh, hey, there's some good stuff on that toy. Oh, there is some bad. good stuff on the on Not the, the game itself. I'm talking about the actual the Mogs, music. Right, the, the Mogs are yes. the, the multi-tracks. Now, I want to hold your hand. The Mog is a bit of a mess, as, as many of the early ones are, because what they try to do is filter as a way of having the drums, for instance, Solo, be yeah. separate, yeah. because the drums were recorded in the basic rhythm track, and they're not separate. And so the Mogs aren't completely reliable, but they give us certain elements. Also, we have the 5.1 mix made for the anthology. And one of the tracks on the 5.1 mix actually is pretty much that fourth track overdub track. Really? Yeah. (laughs) Just in the background hearing, hi. Now with the, yeah, (laughs) right. Now with um, with the three stereo mixes, apart from what they tell you about what you can deduce about the mix from listening to where the voices and instruments are placed, you also can do this thing called oopsing, meaning you reverse the polarity and you get the out-of-phase material, which gives you sort of, you know, extra stuff that is otherwise mixed into a track, but now suddenly is out there by itself. So you have all these elements, and you know from reading Mark Lewison's Recording Sessions book and uh, other other books about their recording, pretty much how the track layout was, and you realize that you have all of the elements at hand to reconstruct that four track. So I didn't get to go into EMI and hear the four track, <laughs> but because of the various things that have come out. They brought it to you. They brought it to me. <laughs> so, so Alan, yes. what you're saying is that Apple shouldn't release the total master as a four track, you know, just that we already have it. It's basically no. What saying. Um, no, don't say that. What I'm saying, don't say that. What I'm saying is that because we already have it, they might as well just send us uh, Ah, That's the better way of thinking. We like that thinking.
So thank you all for listening. Well, the you're number the was in the break. Nice. Yeah, it was in the break. <laughs> but you're all the reason why we do this. Uh, Seriously, And also you. so we all get to hang out and have an excuse to spend time together. But, uh, well, I don't know about but, that. <laughs> but this is, the, uh, this is what makes it fun. It keeps it fresh. That was fun. So uh, there'll be more to come. Da- as they Definitely. used to say in and the old Soupy not- Sales show, Daryl B, more to come. So. But we didn't. But and also, just so you know, these were off the cuff. We had no idea. So yeah, the guys had we, no idea. We was literally coming, so. did not. And I love doing that because it yeah. gives us a chance to answer honestly. Yeah. So, yeah. all right. Thank you. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you all. I'm Tony Chiguardo, your moderator, and I with am, me, I am been. Rob Leonard. And and I am not Tony Chiguardo or Rob Leonard. I am Soupy Sales. <laughs> we'll see you all soon. Fab Four Free For All was edited and produced by Tony Chiguardo at Word of Mouth Studios in Westbury, New York. The opening and closing theme is My Dolly by the band The Badge, featuring longtime listener Jeff Slate, available on its debut album Digital Retro and recent Best Of compilation, as well as from the Fab Four Free For All website. Thanks for listening to Fab Four Free For All.